Well, as we think about the history of our nation, I think it's easy to point out the many and profound influences of Christianity on this nation. Not too far from here, the pilgrims landed, didn't they, with the hope of practicing their religion free from the constraints of the English government. We could also look at the fact that many leading figures, such as Patrick Henry, John Jay, and Samuel Adams, they were all Christians. The Bible is referenced countless times in the writings of the founders. And even those who weren't Christians recognized the, the remarkable significance of the Bible in cultivating virtue in its citizens. Interestingly, one thing we sometimes overlook as far as the influence of Christianity is how prevalent biblical words are in our street names and in the names of our towns and cities. You ever thought about that? They're all over the place. For example, in this community alone, there are roads named Christian Road, Jacob Road, Peter Road, and Ichabod Road. Now, Ichabod means the glory has departed. And for many years, I have wondered, why did they name their street Ichabod? Any of you town historians know that fact? I would be very curious. Why did they name their street Ichabod? But regardless, it still had a biblical basis, right? Then you look at the towns, the different towns that, say, for example, are located here in Connecticut, Bethlehem, Bethany, Canaan, New Canaan, Lebanon, Salem, Sharon, Hebron, Goshen, and Bethel. What does Bethel mean? House of God. But I think of all the biblical names, the one that takes the cake, I think is maybe the best name of all, is actually found in another state the state capital of Rhode Island. Providence. Wow. What a name. Providence. Providence. Providence was founded in 1636 by Roger Williams, a Baptist theologian who fled the Massachusetts Bay Colony for religious liberty's sake. And he named that location, according to Wikipedia.com, after God's merciful providence, which he thought was responsible for leading them to that wonderful location. Providence. Now, that word providence isn't actually a word found in the Bible itself, but it, it captures the concept very beautifully of the fact that God is in control of this world and he cares for this world. Providence really combines several attributes of God. It puts together his power, his wisdom, and his goodness all in one kind of package. God controls all things, the Bible says, and he cares for them. Theologian Walter Elwell says, quote, Providence encompasses every aspect of the created order from beginning to end, from heaven to earth, from animate to inanimate, from individuals to nations, from hours to ages, from weeds to wheat, from birth to death, from catastrophe to calm. Everything is within the loving presence and involvement of the Heavenly Father. Everything, friends. Even things that seem to be like chance according to our perspective, like the roll of a dice, 
Actually, they all fall under the providence of God. Even our choices and decisions, which are real and significant, we're not robots, right? But even those choices fall under the the sovereignty and the providence of God. As we come to our passage today from the Old Testament book of Ruth, we will see the providence of God. And what's really striking about this passage is that we see the providence of God not in bold, powerful, dramatic ways like we sometimes see, like, say, the Red Sea parting for the Israelites to pass through, but in very quiet, ordinary ways. And indeed, God typically works in this type of fashion to bring about his purposes and his plans. Sadly, we spend too much time questioning his providence rather than trusting and enjoying it. And my prayer today is that our time will change our thinking about the providence of God. You with me today, church? Amen. Well, we are in the midst of this series on the book of Ruth. Last week, we covered chapter one. To recap there, a woman named Naomi traveled from her town of Bethlehem to the country of Moab because there was a famine. She went with her husband and her two sons. Her husband passed away while there in Moab. Her two sons took Moabite women as their wives, but unfortunately, the two sons passed away. Uh, Naomi decided to return to Bethlehem, to her homeland, because she heard that the famine had lifted. And so she initially was going to take her two daughters-in-law with her. She knew that they had a much better chance of finding husbands in the future, going, staying in their homeland if they, than if they returned to Bethlehem, coming as Gentiles. She persuaded one of them to stay in the land of Moab, but the other one, who was named Ruth, decided she was going to stay with Naomi no matter what. And why was she going to do that? As she made that profound pledge there in that first chapter, she said, you know what? Your God is my God, and your people are my people, and I'm going to stay with you even no matter what circumstance comes our way, death will have to part us. She was profoundly devoted to the Lord and to Naomi. And as we close the chapter, we saw that when they returned to Bethlehem, Naomi came into town, not very happy, right? She said, hey, everybody, just so you know, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Rather, call me what? Mara, which means bitterness. She had the perspective that she was going to live out the rest of her days in a harsh set of circumstances where she would have to depend upon other people to provide for her and for Ruth. And consequently, she, as we saw at the end of the chapter, was very bitter. So let's pick up in chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2, if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, page 222. And the first part of our passage is Ruth happens to glean in Boaz's field. Ruth happens to glean in Boaz's field. Let's read the first seven verses of Ruth chapter two. It 
says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the field of the part of the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So here we are. Now we're introduced to the third main character of the story, Boaz. And several things were stated about this man. The first thing we see there is that Moaz was a man of high character. It says that he was, quote, a worthy man. And that Hebrew word there for, it says worthy appears several times in our story. and It's going to be very significant as we're going to see. But what we see already is that, is that Boaz believed in the Lord and he had outstanding character. It also said that Boaz was a close relative. Remember, again, they lived in the land of Bethlehem, the town of Bethlehem, which, of course, was part of the tribe of Judah. And part of that, uh, as, they, as that big you know, tribe was broken down, so to speak, into clans, they were from the clan of Ephratha, right? So Elimelech and Boaz were relatives. Doesn't say how close they were, but they were of the same clan, okay, and the narrator gives us this detail right at the start of this, of this passage here. Ruth doesn't know these things, but tips us off so that we know these things, right? Now, before going further, let me just give you a little bit of background of what would have been taking place here. So people would have lived within the city of Bethlehem. Then they would have gone out into the fields to work the fields. And it was prescribed in the Old Testament different laws that tried to care for those who were needy, those who were needy, like the poor, the widows, and sojourners who were resident aliens. These were Gentiles who were now living among the nation of Israel as residents. So Ruth was actually all three of those things, wasn't she? She was poor, she was a widow, and she was a sojourner. You say, well, what did the Old Testament prescribe for people in these kind of situations? Well, in Leviticus 23, 22, it says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your, your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. So what this law was saying was, look, that when the reapers would go through, they would leave the edges of the fields, okay? And then they wouldn't go back through it a second time to get every little bit of grain, but they would leave it out for those who needed them. And so God cares for the needy, and he established these laws so that they would be provided for. Just kind of as a footnote, sometimes we read the Old Testament with a wrong set of lenses. Sometimes we come to the Old Testament as a bunch of strict rules and so forth, and not seeing the incredible goodness of the Old Testament and how it was revolutionary 
in ancient times. For example, a Jewish scholar named Jeremiah Unterman wrote a book called Justice for All, How the Hebrew Bible Revolutionized Ethics. He points out a number of ways that Israel was unique compared to its surrounding neighbors. For example, in his chapter about providing for the disadvantaged, he writes these words, The ancient world was constantly under the threat of drought, food shortages, and famine, where subsistence living was often, if not generally, the norm. In such a world, the Jewish Bible is the first text to legislate food supplies for the poor. The advantage of these laws for the needy cannot be overestimated. While other societies only attempted to deal with food shortages and famine when crises occurred, the Torah's regulations afforded continual relief to the destitute. Do you see the difference? In other words, other societies might try to deal with a crisis that happened on their hands there, but the Old Testament said, I want you to continually care for the needy. The Old Testament's good, friends. And it laid the foundation for Christianity, which of course has set the foundation for Western society. So let's appreciate the Old Testament, amen? As we should. Now, going back to our story, Ruth sets out to glean in the fields, and it appears that Ruth did this on her own. Naomi didn't kick her out the door and say, go bring me back some food or whatever. No, this was Ruth. Ruth and her character shines forth just like Boaz. She was very diligent, wasn't she? She takes the initiative. She doesn't wait for somebody to care for her. She goes and she works the fields herself. Now, again, as we saw there, Ruth did not know Boaz. But did you see in verse 3 that little word that begins with an H? It says that she happened to go to the field of Boaz. Happened. Well, literally in Hebrew, it, it reads as chance chanced. So Ruth didn't know the significance of her actions. And from Bystander, a bystander's perspective, it looked like chance, did it? She just happened to go into Boaz's field. The writer knew what was going on, didn't he? And it's almost like with a wink of his eyes saying, oh yeah, it just happened to be the case that she went into the field of Boaz. But we talked about providence, didn't we? You guys remember that five minutes ago, right? Providence. God was leading her to this field. The Bible says that he establishes our steps. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God was establishing the steps of Ruth. The providence of God was at work. We'll come back to that a little bit later in the message. But in verse 4, I wanted to point out how we finally get to see Boaz and we see him in action. Did you notice his kindness and his godliness that appears right out of the, out of the gate there when he greets his, his workers by saying, The Lord be with you. And then he asks his reapers about this new woman who was there. And he tells her, this is the Moabite woman who came back with Naomi to Bethlehem. He fills Boaz in on the whole story. And he also tells Boaz how she's been incredibly diligent working in the field. So that's the first part of our passage. The second part of our passage is Ruth finds favor with Boaz. This is verses 8 to 16. Read with me, if you will, verses 8 to 16. Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field and that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. 
Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some grain from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean. And do not rebuke her. So Ruth, or excuse me, Boaz tells her not to glean in another field, but to work in his field. And he also tells her to stay close to the other young women and that the young men were not to touch her. As I said last week, this era of the judges period was kind of a spiritually dark period. And I think Boaz's offhand comment shows you that this was not a great time in the life of Israel that he has to kind of make this commandment to the workers. And as a Gentile in a new land, she was certainly even more at risk. Boaz also tells the young men to give her water whenever she needed it. So he treats her with tremendous respect and kindness, doesn't he? Especially for a new woman from Moab. His character really stands out. Well, how does Ruth respond? We saw that back in verse 10, but she, she bowed down before Boaz and said, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Now, to us 21st century Americans, her response is a little bit strange, perhaps, maybe a little bit overdramatic in our, our perspective of things. Maybe so, but keep a couple things in mind before you jump to that conclusion. For one thing, Bowing was a culturally accepted means of showing gratitude. She wasn't being overly dramatic, but just simply had a deep sense of gratitude, and she was just showing it in an appropriate way for that culture. And I wonder how someone like Ruth from that culture might look at us when we try to show our profound appreciation by just doing this. Are you really that grateful? But then more importantly, Ruth had nothing, didn't she? And so Boaz's kindness was a godsend. Now she could have a steady supply of food. As Adam said, most of us know very little of what it is like to have deep hunger. I think we should be a little slower to pass judgment. Heard of an experiment where a hundred college students, American college students, were asked to go read the parable of the prodigal son and then to go recount that story to the observer. When they did this, only six out of 100 
when they recounted the story, mentioned the fact that there was a famine in the story. You guys remember that? There's a famine in the parable of the prodigal son. Kind of interesting. So then the researcher went to Russia and asked 50 students to do the same thing. Out of 50, guess how many recounted the fact there was a famine in the story? Not all of them, but 42 out of 50. 6% versus 84%. Same story. It shows you the tremendous impact that you might, if you have gone through deep hunger or if it is in your people's very recent past, it profoundly affects you. And Ruth was experiencing this. That's why she was so grateful. Next, though, we saw that Boaz tells Ruth that he heard about her story, how he heard heard that she had left Moab and her family, came to Bethlehem to be with Naomi and her people. And then in verse 12, it's worth repeating that, very significant Verse for the whole book, Boaz said to her, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz hopes that the Lord will repay her for her actions. She's been very sacrificial and he wanted the Lord to come alongside and to provide for her. And what is the image he uses? He uses this image of a mother bird gathering up the chicks under her wings, right, to protect them. Beautiful image, isn't it? You see it quite a few times in Scripture. Psalm 57, when David is hiding from King Saul, he said, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass me by. Psalm 91, verse 4 says, He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. The Lord loves to protect his people, doesn't he? He is kind and tender like a mother bird with her chicks. And Boaz's prayer is that God would do the same for Ruth. And of course, Ruth expresses her appreciation to Boaz for the favor he showed her, treating her like she was one of his servants, even though she was this new kid on the block, so to speak. And he continues to show her kindness. When it came time for the meal, uh, he allowed her to eat with the others, and she ate until she was full. We often have to to resist eating until we are full, right, because we do it too much. Can you imagine what that must have felt like for her to eat till her stomach was full? And then he gives her more to take home to Naomi. Ruth is the one, excuse me, Boaz is the one who initiates this kindness. You say, well, he was the one in charge of the field. Of course he was the one. Yeah, there's some truth to that. But judging by the character of the other workers whom Boaz had to tell them, look, don't touch her, I'm not so sure they would have been lining up to help her. Boaz was just a remarkably kind and generous man. And after the meal was over, Ruth goes back to work and Boaz instructs the young men to allow her to glean among the sheaves. And he also tells them, leave out some more, right? Take some of the bundles and put it on the ground for her. Boaz was taking the Old Testament law and then going above and beyond the law, wasn't he? By his generosity. He tells them, don't rebuke her, right? They might have been doing it, but you know, perhaps they would have wanted to give her a harsh word on the side or something, Boaz knows that, right? And he tells him, leave her alone. 
make sure they treat her with respect. You know, and just kind of thinking about this passage during the week and thinking about Boaz, it's very moving, isn't it? It's remarkable. His kindness. And as I said last week from the book of Romans, chapter 15, we're to learn from the things we read in the Old Testament. And I think we're to learn from these examples, aren't we? Let me ask us some questions. Who are people in our lives that we can display such kindness to? Who is someone in need? Who is someone in our lives that we know is an outsider and they don't want to be? Are we looking for such people? Or do we avoid them knowing that it'll be a hassle perhaps in our lives? Friends, let us be generous, profoundly generous. Mentioned uh, earlier the Global Hunger Relief Fund. That is a very real practical way, in addition to the people in our lives, to give to need here in this country and around the world. And as Adam said, we're going to be taking that up this week and next week. So if you didn't have an opportunity to give this week, prayerfully consider how you might be able to contribute and support those in need, to be generous, to follow that example that we see in Boaz. Third part of our passage is Ruth shares her story with Naomi. Let's read verses 17 to 23. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what, she, what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her mother-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So Ruth gleans here until evening. And again, you see the narrator just highlighting her work ethic. That's going to come up in chapter 3. So just kind of file that away. She beats out all the grain that she had gathered up. And it came out to an ephah of barley. Know what an ephah is? Everybody's looking down at the bottom of the footnotes there to try to figure it out real quick. An ephah was about five and a half gallons of grain. Okay? That would have been about... Uh, a two-week supply. I think I heard that it was about 25 to 50 pounds that, that Ruth was hauling back to bring home there. So it was a lot of grain. I would say that she had a pretty good first day of work, wouldn't you? That's a great way to start. So when she gets home, she shows Naomi the loot, right, of everything she had gleaned, gave her some of the leftover food. Naomi asked her where she gleaned, and Ruth told her it was a man named Boaz. And Naomi rejoices. And you see, remember at the end of chapter 1, she had this hard, bitter heart, didn't she? 
and it's just kind of starting to soften as she sees the providence of God, that he wasn't done with their lives. Ruth tells Naomi that he is one of their redeemers. You say, what does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, it referred to a relative who would support a family member in need. Okay, We're going to say a whole lot about that next time because it's a significant part of the story, but we got enough to cover here this morning. Okay, but know that's a very important part we'll talk about next week. But this person was a, had a family relationship to Boaz as a redeemer. Verse 21, again, we saw that Ruth related how Boaz told him that she could work the fields until the harvest was over. And then they, could, they would be able to stockpile this grain for the future. And Ruth was to keep close to the other women because in another field she may not experience that kind of kindness. Again, just a kind of an offhand remark about the darkness that was there at this time during the judges' period. But God's people still being faithful, serving him and being protected in this time. The passage adds the insight that Ruth gleaned during the barley harvest, and then a few weeks later the wheat harvest would start. The final words of our passage, the narrator mentions that Ruth lived in her mother-in-law's house, Naomi. It's kind of an odd way to close out the passage there. You think, why did he say that? I think he was saying that just to show that Ruth was faithful to her pledge, to stay in the house, to stay faithful to lo- and loyal to Naomi, her mother-in-law. And this went on just, not just for a day or two, but this was going on for months at a time. She was staying faithful. Next time we're going to explore the very memorable and fascinating story of Ruth and Boaz and how they decided to pursue a relationship together. But you're going to have to wait an extra week because I'm going to be on vacation next week, all right? So that'll just build the suspense. Go ahead and read ahead if you want to. But anyway, Adam will be preaching next Sunday. Let me close with three points of application about the providence of God, which of course has been a key theme in our passage and really throughout the whole book of Ruth. Remember what we said, Ruth just happened to go to the fields of Boaz. First point I want us to take away from this is to understand the providence of God. You guys listening? Because this is essential. This is essential, to understand the providence of God. The the, the Bible does not teach that the universe is governed by chance. That there are random, unpredictable events outside of the control of God. Nor does the Bible teach that the universe is governed by fate, some kind of impersonal force that just kind of predetermines everything. The Bible teaches that God is in control of the universe. And as I said before, yes, we are creatures with freedom that make choices, that have responsibility. We're not robots, but even our choices fall under the sovereignty of God. And his providence covers every detail of our lives. Do you ever stop and think about that? How mind-boggling it must be, the power and the wisdom of God to providentially control every detail of your life and the lives of multiplied millions and billions of people? Writer Brian Larson makes the comparison to the 1937 Disney classic, 
Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. It was Disney's first full-length animated movie. The movie was a monumental task. It required Disney artists to make over one million pictures because each picture only appeared on the screen for one twenty-fourth of a second. You know, they just would draw a picture and it'd be a little different than the one before, right? Over a million pictures to create that movie. To the observer, as we watch it at, at, at regular speed, doesn't seem like a big deal, right? But behind the scenes, it required an unbelievable amount of work. Larson says, quote, our lives are like that movie. God puts infinite thought, skill, and careful attention into every detail. Yet as our lives run at, quote, regular speed, we have no idea how much God's providence fills every second. And so church, think about the way we talk sometimes when we attribute things to luck or to chance or to fate. In essence, what we are doing is robbing God of his glory. Do you see that? A.W. Tozer said, I do not know why God does some things, but I am convinced that nothing is accidental in his universe. So settle that understanding in your heart about the providence of God. Second, look for the providence of God. Look for the providence of God. Do you do that in your daily life? The providence of God should be a motivation to live life. We should wake up every day and think, what will God do today? Then we should expect him to work in some way. Sometimes, though, we live kind of like practical atheists. We certainly believe in Christ, and we can have a time of reading our Bibles and prayer that's meaningful and significant and rich in our lives, but then we close our Bibles, and then we go out into the world, and we sort of just disconnect from that reality, right? We just read about the providence of God, but then we go into the car, and then we go to the store, and then we go to our house, and we lose sight of the providence of God and expecting and to see him work, either right there in our midst, or maybe that day we realize, oh yeah, now I get why God did this yesterday or the day before or last week or several years ago. The light bulbs are going off, but we're not really looking for it sometimes, are we? Because we're so busy to get from A to B and B to C and to get this task done that we stop, we don't stop and think, how can I be looking for the providence of God today? problem is not that we're looking for his providence when it is not there. Rather, we're, we're not looking for his providence when it is there. And I'll be honest, the Lord kind of pressed this into my heart this week. You need to grow in this. You need to grow in this. And I appreciate listening to some of you, how you do better in that. You see and you look for the hand of God in things that's powerful. And it's very encouraging. 
But I just think about some ways that we can grow in this. For example, if we should expect to be thankful at the start of the day that God's going to do something. Or again, we're going to realize what he has been doing and now a kind of boom, light bulb, it goes off. At the end of the day, we're going to see something that God has done. Or if we're praying for things, we should expect God to work in some measure. Again, things we're praying for that day are, again, things in the past that are starting to come to fruition. Or if something bad happens, uh uh-oh, we don't give up on the providence of God, do we? Something bad happens, which is going to be the case. We should think, okay, God allowed this for a reason. God is doing something on my behalf. I know he is for me, not against me. I wonder what he might be doing. Maybe he's trying to discipline me because I have a thick skull and I don't respond right away. Maybe he's testing me so I'll produce more and more fruit in my life. Maybe he's just sending a circumstance so I'll realize, you know what? God, you're in control. You don't serve me, but I serve you. Let me have a more mission-minded heart so that wherever I'm at in my daily life, I'm trying to seek and understand where you are working so I can join with you. Took a while, huh? (laughs) And I do believe this, that when we are on mission to serve him, the providence of God becomes clearer in our lives. As our priorities line up with his priorities, God will show his hand in greater and greater ways. Not just to bless us in our lives, but to advance his kingdom. Again, writer Brian Larson shares a wonderful story about God's providence. He speaks about a man named John Robb who was in Moscow to teach a seminar at the Lausanne Soviet Congress on Evangelization. I think this was a number of years ago. While there, he met a man named Mirza who was a doctor from Azerbaijan, a Muslim region where at the time there was only 20 known converts to Christ. Rob told Mirza about Christ and wanted to give him some Christian literature, but unfortunately, he had given away all the Bibles that he had brought there to Russia. So he gave him a gospel tract, and that's all he had. Rob writes, quote, Mirza showed up again the next day at my hotel room just as I was leaving for the airport. He expressed his appreciation for my friendship, saying that he hoped he could, we could meet again. I thought, Lord, what I give for a Russian New Testament right now. Not 10 seconds later, there was a knock at my door. The Russian Gideons were there with a whole load of New Testaments. He says they had just received permission from the hotel management, just happened, right, to place Bibles in every room. One of them held out a New Testament as if to say, is this what you wanted? I handed it to Mirza, and we said goodbye. As we are on mission, the providence of God becomes clearer. But let us look for it, friends, every day. And then thirdly, let us rest in the providence of God. If we, if we understand the providence of God and look for it, we shouldn't be afraid of the future like we sometimes are. Matthew 6, Jesus instructs his followers to look at the fields of the flowers and the birds. Does God provide for them? Yes, he does. And Jesus tells us that we matter so much more to God than those creatures. So we shouldn't fear the future. 
Instead, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Will you rest in His providence today? Famous Heidelberg Catechism in 1563, after discussing what is the providence of God, it asks, why should we understand it? What does this mean for our lives? And it says these wonderful words, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. We can rest in the providence Let us pray, church. Lord God, we thank you for this wonderful passage. Thank you for the people who just happened to be here today. Lord, I pray that you would do a work through your word as we prayed at the beginning from Isaiah 55. God, may you do a work in each heart and mind. May you give all of us a greater reassurance of your hand of providence, to understand it, to seek it out, and to rest in it. And Lord, I pray for someone here today who has never understood how great and awesome this God is. Lord, I pray that they would also realize that this God wants a relationship with them, and that can be obtained by asking for forgiveness of their sin, repenting of their sin, and turning to Jesus Christ fully God and fully man who died on the cross so that they might know him. May they surrender their hearts and minds to Jesus today. We thank you and we bless you. And it's in that wonderful name of Jesus we ask it. All God's people said, amen, amen.